precious Lord, we're going to look at fellowship this morning. We're going to look at what that means, and uh, we pray that you would help us to understand and that, that as the people on the road to Emmaus felt the Spirit burning within, that you just show us the, the burning within us is the Holy Spirit who connects each one of us to each other. Amen. And as I look at this, we have to honour Bev's garden. I'd never seen one of these before. So if you've got some nice fancy stuff and you say, hey, I've got some flowers that might one day appear on the screen, I'll come around with the camera. <laughs> That's beautiful, isn't it? Acts 2.42, fellowship. So what does it say in Acts 2.42? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What do we have so far? We've had the breaking of bread. We've had prayer. Um, we're getting into the apostles' teaching and after this will be fellowship. So I think we're on the right track. And just think about this. On the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit pours himself out in the morning and in the afternoon he plants the super church. Instant church, 3,000 people. That's not bad for an afternoon's work, is it? <laughs> but talk about the unexpected. I mean, what do you do with an extra 3,000 people for lunch? <laughs> That's exactly right. The organisers have been going ballistic, thinking about how are we going to manage an instant super church? But the Holy Spirit is all over it, and he moves his newly baptised family members sort of spontaneously. They just get stuck into those four main things. Uh, into the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And those four things are interlocking, they're mutually interdependent, but I'd like to focus, as I said, on the word fellowship. So you've got, you've got an afternoon, you've got a completely new community produced and they have to find a way to live and do life together to have fellowship and find that they did and we benefit from what they did this very day 2,000 years later in a small wheat belt town on the other side of the world amazing but this is a sort of a summary here of the first days of life in the Christian church is brief because it's a summary and so we need to look into other parts of the New Testament to say, well, what is this fellowship that's going on here? And of course, you all know that the Greek word used for fellowship is, let's see if they're right, koinonia, yes, uh, sharing, contributing, partnership, participation. Don't just think about that as words on the board. Think about the people around about you, beside you sharing with them, contributing to them, with them, partnering with them, participating with them. That's the concept of fellowship. It's a community of people committed to one another, mutually committed. Now, we just got to note that this group of people who were was created by the Holy Spirit was only people who got saved. They didn't have any happy pagans you are just in there, oh, these guys are on something good, I'll have what they're having. No freeloaders, no curious bystanders. And so the basis of our fellowship is, of course, salvation. And notice, do you think about salvation as 
fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. We proclaim to you what was seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not proclaimed to produce individual isolated Christians. It's proclaimed to produce a fellowship, a sharing, an in common life purpose, an in common power, a common ministry and testimony. It's not just that you get out of hell, you get saved into something, into a fellowship of the people sitting alongside you right now and a fellowship with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ. And so because we are, how we treat one another is how we treat Christ. If we're in Christ, we're also in one another. And when you became a believer, you entered the fellowship. The Holy Spirit baptised you into the fellowship and from then on you can't get out of the fellowship. You can mar it, you can ignore it, you can work against it, but you are from here on in part of the fellowship because if you're in Christ, you're in fellowship. And then this fellowship manifests or it shows Christ to the world. His body is incarnate in the fellowship of the church which means his body becomes flesh if they're of carnivorous that's to do with uh, carne the flesh uh, the body becomes flesh in us we are the visible touchable humanity and expression of jesus in this town we are christ in the world and everyone who's in Christ is also entitled to full involvement in the fellowship. All are equal in this fellowship. Wow. But remember, this is a fellowship of light or purity. And so that means we've got to be willing to confront our own tendency to impurity. And we need to aspire to being pure and have a habit of dealing with our impurity through confession confessing our sins and that's called living in the light and let's look at that this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you God is light in him there is no darkness and if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and we we don't live out the truth but if we walk in the light as he's in the light we have fellowship with one another do you think about that when you're walking in the light you're having fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we're just deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. But a wonderful promise, if we confess our sins, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and wonderfully purify us from all unrighteousness. And if you, you claim that you haven't sinned, you're making him out to be a liar and his words not in us so regardless of how you feel about it if you're saved you're walking in the light because you're walking in the kingdom of light now you're a member of a fellowship of people who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and so we value light we value openness and we develop a habit of fessing up when we mess up as soon as possible because we've learned that when you're living with a pure conscience, that is a 
the top way to live, isn't it? That's a really good way. So what have we got in this fellowship? We've got believers who are always in the fellowship. They're always in. You don't get lost. You're always in the light. But you're always confessing your sins. And you're always being forgiven. We share one common life under one head, under Christ. And this is the distinctive life of the church. It's unity. It's shared life. It's commonality. It's fellowship. And we see a wonderful picture of this. Paul gives it to us in Romans, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12. And he says that our fellowship here is just like a human body. Just as a body has many parts, but all its parts form one body, if so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we're all equal in this. We're all given the one spirit to drink. And even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of, of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't. Even though I thought that, it wouldn't stop for that reason being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but it's only one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Appendixes are very useful, aren't they? And the part that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God's put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. So now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of it. Now we've really got to have a healthy understanding of that because it's just critical for the life of the church. So church is not a spectator sport enjoyed on Sundays. It's a common life shared with other believers. The thought that God put in my mind on that was, well, in the evening... Do you share your evening with other believers or do you share it with your streaming services? I thought, well, that's a challenging thought. Because what did people do before they had big screen TVs and before they had, well, people came over and had a cuppa. We played cards. We did things together. Because there weren't the options. Anyway, I digress. As Christ's church, we are one wife, metaphorically, and one husband. But there's one body, one life source, one head. We are 
a living organism dependent on each other. Dependence? That's an interesting thing to tease out. Do we depend on one another? True fellowship, you see, is spiritual, profound, essential, and it's fit our very life. And what did Jesus pray when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's going to be leaving. He prays that they will be one, which is what happens at salvation. You are placed into a oneness, a unity, which is the body of Christ, which should make a difference to how you live, shouldn't it? With the shared life, with the shared eternal life, with the shared faith, with, with shared love spread abroad, abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, with a shared purpose to live for the glory of God, with a shared ministry to proclaim the gospel and advance the kingdom, and with the shared truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So this relational thing is because we're made in God's image. God is a relational God. He's a trinity. God has made for us, has made us for being in relationship. And so that's what we see at this part of, we've been going through the book of Acts, we see at the beginning of the church, the Holy Spirit is poured out dramatically and the result immediately is relational. Not a spectator event. It's not like it's salvation and then you're on your own to wander around doing your own thing. No. When you come to salvation in Christ, you are embedded into a union of common life with every other believer. However, we have an enemy. And he wants to destroy fellowship. And he's very cunning about it. He's got into evangelism. Have you heard some evangelists telling people, you can get what you want in Jesus. Christianity is, will give you everything you want. Hmm. It's just a cloak for narcissism and self-indulgence, isn't it? So as I was preparing for this message, I came across some very insightful material from John MacArthur about the impact of modern technology on fellowship. And I'd like to share some of his insights with you now. And he starts off, he refers to the 1980s. Go back to a man called Neil Postman. He wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the current problem of that time was TV hadn't been in for long. And he was saying, serious thinking is being replaced by entertainment, especially the mind-crippling power of television. At least TV was a group experience. That guy back in the 80s couldn't have anticipated how big the screens would get, that they would be in so many people's lounge rooms, that more people could watch together, or that the screens would also get smaller. And the seductive entertainment on the big screen is all coming down to the small screen. It's gone from being a group experience and a public experience to an intimate personal private experience and think about it like this every person now becomes a creator of his own private world and it's a secret world it's a secret world of preferences and temptations and relationships you find online it's a secret world that has a force and a ubiquity that means it's everywhere that's just unparalleled in human history 
Think about this. A small screen is the most selfish necessity ever devised. You know, once you had a phone so you could talk to other people. But technology is put in the hand and soon, right, you can get it in your glasses. You've got the most constant, incessant, visual, private world of self-centred indulgence and temptation and entertainment ever conceived. You see, in that world, you choose. You choose everything. Your entertainment and no one knows. You choose your music, you choose your relationships, which means you become God in your little world. On your little screen, you create the world you want. You're the creator of your own private universe. And outside of your private cyberspace and your Facebook friends is the outer darkness of whoever, whatever and whoever you reject. A theologian called Carl Truman says that the language of friendship is hijacked and cheapened by social media. The language of Facebook both reflects and encourages childishness. It's all about what do you like? Click if you like. And so he says childishness has become something of a textually transmitted disease. I like that. Childishness has become something of a textually transmitted disease. Childishness. I mean, what's the most characteristic thing of a child? It's just complete self-centeredness. They want what they like. Did you know that the latest statistics say that the average high school student looks at his small screen for nine hours a day? And the average person looks at their device 12 times an hour and they spend 11 hours a week looking at their screen, which adds up to about 11 years of their life looking at screens. And these people... They live in a bizarre non-world that involves, and think about this, there's no risk to yourself there. There's no real giving of yourself to others. There's no true vulnerability, no commitment, definitely no commitment. There's no sacrifice for others. There's no real meaning and no value. And real fellowship can't exist in a world of self-created avatars because it requires real persons. And I don't know if you've seen this trend, but people aren't getting married as young like they used to because they've created their own world, they live in it, and you can't break in. And they don't need anyone outside of their own cyber world. But you see, Christianity is not an individual experience. It's not a private experience. You weren't meant to live by yourself in a world where you can isolate yourself with a massive form of temptation that you're in complete control of and nobody else knows about it. The rapid trend is heading towards it being just normal to create your own virtual world of virtual self. And people recreate themselves wonderfully there as they would like themselves to be and they project themselves in that way. The effort they put into getting a picture just right for Instagram is amazing. You can upload your self-creation into the Eden of the internet, that's it, the perfect you, where you're beautiful and where you're indomitable and you're intelligent and wise and cool and self-actualized, just like some 
technological form of science of mind and they say these days I tweet therefore I am which results in the culture becoming more isolated more narcissistic more self-absorbed more individualistic more morally relative more entitled and unfortunately doesn't stay out there in the out in the world it comes into the church parents hand their kids devices so they can fit in with all the other kids and so they can be babysat evangelists who think oh, we'll get to them we'll we'll give them what they want in order to convince them that the gospel's true and they find out that the people want what they want because they've created a world in which their own wants dominate created a world in which their own wants dominate and what about this notion of privacy people want privacy and privacy is just a slogan really which means I want convenience and I want low commitment and I want anonymity and I want unaccountability and mostly I want self-promotion and self-actualization because oh, it's so hard to find a church well people have created their own first church of the personal iTunes you have your own music you have your own playlist and I've seen this when people fellowship with each other they tell others what's in their playlist but they don't listen to what's in somebody else's playlist because it's their playlist that they're interested in and they create your own messengers because you know who you want to listen to you want to want to hear and you create your own friends because you don't feel comfortable at church because uh, people there are not always likable and they don't always like what you like and you might want to, you might hear a message from a preacher who doesn't say what you want to hear and worst of all you might have to listen to old hymns in 4-4 time led by a senior citizen <laughs> and the result is a generation of people who think they're entitled to have the world the way they want to have it because that's the world they've created for themselves and that's where they live and then and you can't break it and you can't break into it just on Thursday one of our friends told me that she'd heard a youngster speaking that she was just outraged that a friend had dropped into her place without texting first apparently it's now offensive to be interrupted for friends to drop in and so for many entitlement to their own view of everything just dominates their own view of information their own view of experience their own view of relationships and this rules out truth and accuracy and credibility and rationality and sacrifice and deferred gratification because we don't really like that I rather prefer to think about God like this you know how deadly a fellow a while back Giglio said young Millennials are leaving church but they're going towards Jesus what join an e-group they say because you say church attendance that's becoming unnecessary you can watch at home on your big screen church going to church that's not necessary it can't entertain me the way my private little TV show can the, the guy that I want to listen to and the chairs aren't as comfy as my comfy chair anyway and the local church oh well that's inadequate why would you listen to a to your pastor when you can listen to the best pastors in the world particularly the ones that you like to listen to and so 
people are essentially becoming church planters and they're planting churches with one member. Uh, recently we saw a, a trend called the emerging church and they figured, oh, the institutional church is not good and there's a lot of that going around. The problems that we have are due to the institutions. But the emerging church just sort of disintegrated because they all had their own personalised version of Christianity and they discovered after a while there was actually no point in getting together. They'd come with their lattes and their computers but well, they didn't actually need each other. And so they kept going, trying to find a place that more closely fits their preferences, which was the church of one. And so for these people, we say, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. And I think a valid definition of hell is it's a place where you get everything you want. Well, this technology can be bad like this, or it can be good. I'm just highlighting the misuse of technology and seeing how that seductive trend is using technology as a tool to disconnect from one another because fellowship is precious it's precious and everything about the church fights the privacy which is offered by the devices the very basis of our fellowship has an obligation about it an obligation to to love. A new commandment, I give you, love one another. It doesn't say a new commandment, I give you, like one another. Or love the ones you like. It says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. How do you get people who have been appealed to on a narcissistic basis to come to Jesus because... They have all their needs net. All their desires will be fulfilled. All the prosperity they want, you come to Jesus, you'll get that. How do you get to see get these people to see that Christianity is more about giving up your life for someone else? More about sharing everything in life. Because that's what it means to be a believer. It's a fellowship of sharing and, and serving. Some of you will know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called Life Together. He's one of the few guys who stood up against the Nazis. And he has a wonderful little quote about uh, fellowship. He says, We thank God for giving us brothers and sisters who live by his call, by his forgiveness, and by his promise. We don't complain of what God doesn't give us. We rather thank God God for what he does give us daily and is not what has been given us enough. In the bad years, you still survived here because it was enough. In the good years, it's enough. Brothers, who will go on living with us through sin? Uh, sorry, brothers, who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace? What's better than those kind of brothers? Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother with whom I too stand, are we not all both under the word of Christ? And so that very hour of disillusionment when my brother lets me down is salutary because it teaches me that neither of us can live by our words and deeds. 
but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, which is the fact that we all here have the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We're not meant to be demanders. We're meant to be thankful recipients. There's a fellow called Aristides who was writing in ancient times about Christians. And he was a pagan looking on. But he was looking at it and trying to say, what's going on here with Christianity? And he wrote this. Speaking of Christians, they abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world. When there's among them a man that's poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days so that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. How have some sections of the church left that aside to thinking of Christianity as a way to become rich, wealthy and self-indulged? The biggest danger of the fellowship is sin. It cripples the unity that would demonstrate Christ to the world through our fellowship. There's too much opportunity to cultivate private sin on your device in that isolated world of your own perfect world, just the way you want it to be. And that's devastating and destructive to the true fellowship of the church. Don't get caught there. What's going to happen to the church if it's not known by our fellowship? The early church was marked by the fellowship, by their shared life. And so we need to pray for our church. We need to pray for the people of this church that the Lord will protect and preserve our fellowship because in preserving our fellowship, that preserves our testimony to the world. It preserves our purity because we need each other to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to get over things that have hurt us in the past. We need to be, say, we've got to get over stuff because we need each other. We need to rely upon each other. The church formed so dramatically after Pentecost had people pouring their lives into one another, lovingly, deeply concerned for and committed to one another. So that word, that phrase, one another, is what we're going to finish with. We're just going to run through some verses which have one another in it. 1 John 1 verse 7. We have fellowship with one another because of Jesus. It's a dramatic witness. Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. There's devotion and honouring in there. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another. So if you want to be practical about fellowship, this is, these are the things that you do in fellowship. This is what makes fellowship wonderful. Live in harmony with one another. The only debt we should have with one another is to love one another. Should we be critical of one another? No, let's stop passing judgment on one another. We should accept one another. We should instruct one another. Our greeting of one another should be full-bodied. Greet one another. We should work to agree with one another. 
We should encourage one another. We should serve one another. We should bear with one another. We should be kind and compassionate to one another. We should forgive one another. We should be worshipful, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns. We should be submissive to one another, submit to one another. We should spur one another on to good works. We should be very careful that we don't slander one another. Friends, we shouldn't grumble about one another. We should offer hospitality to one another. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Go thou and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, uh, we understand that we need to be confessing of our sins because we've maybe been caught too much up with wanting to like one another, but you call us to love one another. So forgive us where we have fallen down in being loving and forgive us for holding other things against others when we shouldn't have. And may we understand the profound unity we have with the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts. And my prayer is that love will be shed abroad in this place as long as Muck and Budin is a town. Right in Jesus' name, amen. 